With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ghosts, demons, UFOs, Bigfoot, Dogman? Oh my. Hey, I'm Neoma Finn. Wow, has 2023 been a fun year for me? Thank you so much to everyone who reached out and offered their sincere prayers and good wishes while my husband and I have had to tackle one unbearable problem after another. Your patience and understanding has been a huge blessing for me. Thank you doesn't seem like enough, but it's all I have to offer. In the middle of all this crazy, we've had to do a lot of soul searching and decision making about where we're going to go from here and how we're going to proceed. We really don't know where we're going to end up, but we do know we want to keep this channel going. Back before the floodgates opened and the water was just trickling in, I'd started this video. I couldn't have chosen a better time. Reading through all of your emails and Facebook messages really gave me encouragement and comfort, and that's why I'm so glad to present to you, for your entertainment, another installment of the crazy that surrounds you. Since I've developed a pretty close-knit relationship with some of you, and you send me stories on a regular basis, I thought it might be fun if I started with a new voice. She found me, as so many of you have, through Cameron Buckner over at Dixie Cryptid. I don't know if I should use the real name of this lady who sent me the story, so I'm just going to call her Tanya. I like that name, don't you? Tanya works in the small North Carolina town of Siler City. Anyone old enough to remember the Andy Griffith show might recognize that name. When Barney Fife arranged for Andy and his longtime girlfriend, Helen Crump, to have a day alone together, Goober took him out to Myers Lake, where Andy was subsequently busted for fishing without a license. The game warden took them to Siler City to pay the fine, and here's another little piece of trivia from that episode. It was one of eight episodes directed by Howard Morris. You might remember him as Ernest T. Bass. See, Tanya? I know a little bit about Andy Griffith. For the last couple of months, Tanya's been working for a document imaging company located in an old building with offices upstairs and down in the front and a warehouse in the back. Once she got comfortable with her job, she'd asked her boss if she could come in on a Saturday to do a little overtime and get ahead on some work. You know, it had to make her boss feel good to know he'd hired a real go-getter, so of course he said yes. That Saturday, Tanya, her daughter, and one other employee showed up went to their desks, and got right to work. Their co-worker's office was on the first floor, so it was just Tanya and her daughter upstairs. They'd been working quietly for a couple of hours, each one listening to their own playlists with headphones on, when they began to hear what sounded like someone else working in the office next to theirs. They could clearly hear someone walking around on the hard wooden floors and papers being shuffled and stacked into piles. They each shot puzzled looks at each other, but there was another employee in the building, so they figured maybe it was him. A little time passed, and the other employee came upstairs to grab some boxes of files. 
Right away, Tanya asked him if he'd been upstairs earlier in the office next door stacking papers. Normally, he'd have to pass by them to get to that office, but there was another way to access it. It requires using a scissor lift to reach a loading platform, but a door there will lead into the back office where they keep boxes of files, so she thought, maybe. He, however, assured them that he had not come up earlier and suggested that maybe they'd just heard him working below them. He then grabbed the boxes he needed and headed back downstairs. Tanya and her daughter went back to work, but the sounds of someone working in the office next to theirs continued. By now, they were beginning to second-guess everything they were hearing. Maybe it was our co-worker downstairs, they decided. They finished their work for the day and went home. Monday morning, they were back at work with all their co-workers, and she mentioned the noises they'd heard to her supervisor. To her surprise, she said, I know exactly what you're talking about. There have been a lot of times when I've been here alone and heard footsteps upstairs or seen shadows I couldn't explain. She went on to say that she sometimes got an eerie feeling of not being alone. At this point, some of Tanya's other co-workers chimed in with stories of their own that mirrored hers. As they were all talking about it, her boss came upstairs, so she told him about it. Oh, that's just the ghost, he said nonchalantly. Then he took Tanya outside and showed her a memorial gravestone in front of the building. Before her boss bought the building, it was a cable company of some kind. The owner of that company died of a heart attack while working at his desk in the upstairs office next to theirs. Poor guy probably just wanted his company back. Too bad he didn't have a ghost of a chance. This next story is from my friend Walter. You remember him. He once witnessed a Native American legend while driving over the road. This time, his story is a little more out of this world. It was Christmas Eve back in the 1970s. His dad had a brand new 1977 Chevy 4x4 truck that he was pretty proud of. They don't make trucks like that anymore. No wonder Walter remembers it so fondly. It was a wet Christmas that year, and they were driving home after visiting Walter's brother-in-law. At around midnight, everyone's attention was drawn upward as a glowing white object came towards them. There were no other cars on the road, and even if there were, this thing was in the sky. The closer it got, the bigger it got. And the closer it got, the more it appeared to be dipping down at them. Walter's mom even ducked to avoid being hit as it passed over. Walter couldn't take his eyes off of it. It reminded him of the spaceship on the television show Battlestar Galactica starring Lauren Green. As it passed over their truck, he realized that this huge object had windows along its side, and he even saw what he thought looked like people inside looking out at him. As soon as it got to their tailgate, it switched into hyperdrive, and in the blink of an eye, it was gone. And it never made a sound. All Walter heard was the normal wind sounds created by the truck as his dad drove on. A year later, his mom saw where it had been seen over Australia. He doesn't remember experiencing any time loss, but he was a small boy back then. Children have a different concept of time than adults, so he can't say for sure. Looking back, he does have to wonder if the cemetery that can be seen clearly on a hill overlooking the highway 
might have had anything to do with what happened. I don't know, Walter. It's possible. Maybe the aliens did a little historical research and decided to take a page from Burke and Hare instead of abducting live specimens. Maybe they were grave robbing. Carson is another friend I've talked about before. Carson's life seems fraught with paranormal experiences. Here are just a few of the things he shared. Carson's Uncle Ted was going through a divorce, so his parents let him put a single wide trailer on their property. Not surprisingly, he was struggling with the situation. Depression set in and he began mixing alcohol with prescription drugs. Then things took a strange turn when Uncle Ted began to say that he was being visited by a spirit who wanted to talk to Carson. Of course, Carson had his doubts. After all, Uncle Ted was known for being a world-class prankster. There was no way he could have been serious about a spirit wanting to have a sit-down with his nephew. One evening, Carson's mom sent him to tell Uncle Ted to come up for supper. Dutifully, he headed out the door and ran across the lawn to deliver the message. But as he approached the trailer, he could hear voices inside. Uncle Ted was having a conversation with someone who Carson didn't recognize. I'm taking you and the boy, the stranger was saying. When Carson knocked on the door, the new voice growled in angry, Come in. Reluctantly, he opened the door and stepped inside, expecting to see some grizzled-looking vagrant or an oversized bully. Instead, he saw only his uncle standing by his kitchen table. Slowly, he turned his head and locked eyes with my friend. This was not his uncle. It may have been the same body, possibly even the same face, but the eyes were the eyes of a malevolent stranger, angry and threatening. And when it spoke, it was not his uncle's voice that Carson heard. Terrified, he turned and ran out of the trailer as fast as he could. He ran back up to the house and rushed through the door, crying, Mom! Mom! What is it, Carson? She asked, probably thinking that Ted had finally mixed one too many secondol with one too many whiskey and soda chasers. Struggling to catch his breath and with eyes as white as saucers, Carson managed to tell his mother what he'd seen and heard. She told him to stay where he was and quickly ran out of the house to check on Ted. Being of a curious nature, Carson ran to the kitchen window to watch as his mother entered the trailer. He held his breath for several heartbeats, waiting for something dramatic to happen. He imagined demons flying out the windows, dispatched by the superpowers only a mom can have. He envisioned his mother shaking the spirit out of his uncle, then watching it dissolve in a burst of brightly flashing colors. But there were no flickering lights, nor any screaming demons. A few minutes later, his mother opened the door and stepped back outside with Uncle Ted right beside her. Together, they walked to the house and sat down to a normal meal. Carson, though bewildered by how completely rational his uncle now appeared, said nothing. Afterwards, he helped his mother with dishes. While they were alone at the sink, she whispered into his ear, It was your imagination. I saw no one other than your uncle when I went down to the trailer, and he was fine. Then in response to his perplexed expression, she added, You'll feel better after a good night's sleep. Then they all sat down and played cards while enjoying some cake that his mother had made earlier. Everything was as it should be. 
Carson thought about his mother's words while he watched his uncle acting as if nothing extraordinary had happened earlier. Perhaps she was right. Maybe he had imagined the whole thing. As the evening wore on, he convinced himself that he'd been ridiculous to think that his beloved uncle could have been anyone or anything other than the man sitting across from him now. He drew comfort from that. The night came to an end and Uncle Ted got up to leave. At the door, he suddenly turned and told Carson's mom that he'd forgotten to bring back the pie plate he'd taken home with him the other night. She suggested that Carson walk back to his trailer with him to get it. Since by now, he'd convinced himself that the events from earlier that night were nothing more than a figment of his imagination, he thought nothing of it. They crossed the lawn in jovial conversation, like any uncle and nephew might. At the trailer, Ted told Carson to wait outside while he got the pie plate. Then he went inside and closed the door behind him. A few seconds later, the door opened again, and Uncle Ted stood there with the dish in his hand. Except this wasn't Uncle Ted. This was the mysterious, evil doppelganger Carson had witnessed earlier. He leaned down and pressed the plate into Carson's hands, glared at him with those same sinister eyes as before, and hissed, I'll see you soon, boy. Carson took off like a shot. He ran home, raced through the kitchen, tossing the plate on the table as he did, flew up the stairs and went directly into his bedroom. He didn't bother telling his mom about this one. He figured she wouldn't believe him anyway. A week went by uneventfully. Uncle Ted was back to normal. For all Carson knew, he'd stay that way. He had no reason to believe otherwise. Then one night, as usual, Carson was sent down to the trailer to let his uncle know that supper was ready. He knocked on the door and yelled, Mom says supper's ready, and she made peach cobbler for dessert. Come in. Help me, was the reply. A cold chill ran through Carson's body. Something was wrong, and he knew it. He carefully opened the door and peeked inside. Uncle Ted was sitting on his kitchen chair with his arms hanging down at his sides. Both arms were cut wide open with blood dripping off his fingers into the wide pools on the floor. His head was tipped forward as he looked out from under his brow at his nephew. His eyes were white. There were no pupils nor irises visible just white. Carson felt no fear now. He recognized this for what it was. He knew that the spirit who had wanted to talk to him wasn't a spirit. It was a demon. At 12, he understood about God and Satan, angels and demons. He knew what they are and what they can do. They were a church-going family, and he was an attentive Sunday school student. Come here, boy, the demon hissed. Carson, Please, Carson, help me, Uncle Ted pleaded in his own voice. Carson moved cautiously forward. He wanted to help his uncle. He wanted to save him from the clutches of the evil entity until Uncle Ted's hand began to move slowly up to the counter to a large kitchen knife lying there. Carefully and deliberately, it took hold of the knife and brought it back down to his side and hid it behind the leg of the chair. Carson... Please help me, Uncle Ted cried. Come to me. At that point, Carson darted from the trailer, ran across the front lawn, and ran inside to tell his mom and dad what had happened. They ran out to the trailer while he watched through the kitchen window. A minute later, 
His mom was running back across the lawn and calling for an ambulance and the police. They took Uncle Ted away that night. He lived and eventually returned home from the hospital, but he had no recollection of what had happened. A couple of months later, he moved away, and the trailer was removed from the property. Carson always felt on guard whenever his uncle came back for a visit. One night the following summer, he was walking home after playing in an extra-inning baseball game. He was crossing the lawn and heading for the front door when he suddenly had the sensation of something running up on him. He whirled around, fists clenched and ready to strike at whatever it was, but there was nothing there. All of his other senses were telling him otherwise, but his sight was seeing nothing. He shrugged it off and turned back around to head for the house. But something was lying on the grass in front of him now. He hadn't seen it before, but there it was. A knife. Identical in size and shape to the one Uncle Ted had used on himself. Was it waiting for him? He picked it up and took it inside to show his mom. Where did you get that? she exclaimed. It was laying on the ground where Uncle Ted's trailer used to be, he told her. She took it and told him to go upstairs and clean up for bed. Later, he overheard his mom tell his aunt that she didn't know what to do with it. I've thrown it away several times, but it keeps coming back, she lamented. Carson's aunt suggested she approach their pastor about it. Whether or not his mom did so, he couldn't say. Decades have passed since then. Both his mother and his uncle have since passed away. Recently, Carson found an old knife in the kitchen drawer of an old house during an estate sale. It was exactly like the one his uncle had used, and the one that he'd found on the lawn later. Was it the same knife? Who can say? But he had to have it, and now it's his. And he never thinks of getting rid of it. Perhaps that's a mistake. Only time will tell. Carson had an Aunt Maud and Uncle John who lived on a small farm in upstate New York back in the 1960s. They had a man who lived with them and helped on the farm. He was a big man with the mind of a 12-year-old. His name was Jim. Now, Jim wasn't their son, but they'd raised him since his mom passed away when he was a baby. He was a quiet man who rarely spoke. Back when Carson and his family would go visit his aunt and uncle on Sundays, he and his siblings would sit in the living room with Jim and play checkers or cards while the adults sat in the kitchen and visited over coffee. These visits were pleasant enough and a routine. But every time they went there, his parents issued one stern warning. Never go in the cellar. There was an open cistern down there and it was dangerous. Carson couldn't help but notice the deep concern in his parents' voices whenever they issued this warning. It was enough to make any little boy curious. On one visit, Carson went with his parents alone to visit his aunt and uncle. He and Jim were sitting in the living room as usual, playing checkers, when he heard a young girl's voice say, Hello? Come and play. Jim looked at Carson and said, You hear her too, don't you? Yeah, I answered. Who is it? It's a little girl who lives in the water well, he answered. Let's go see her. Carson, the little girl's voice called again. Come see me, please. 
She knew his name. He couldn't believe it. She knew his name. She's always known your name, Jim told him. She's been wanting to meet you for a long time. I'll take you down there if you want to go. The door to the cellar was in the living room. His parents were out in the barn looking at some new livestock his uncle had recently purchased, and there was a little girl who lived in the water in the cellar. Of course he wanted to go. Jim led the way down the stairs across the dark cellar to the cistern. There was already a chair next to it. He told Carson to stand on it and look in. Carson scrambled up onto it and looked down into the water. At first, that was all he saw. Deep, dark water. Then she slowly began to appear. First her head and face, then her hands and arms. And finally, her whole body was visible under the surface. She stared up at him with a broken neck that flopped from side to side as she spoke. He killed me in the cellar and threw me in the cistern, she said. I want to go home with you. Carson! The sound of his mother's angry voice calling him startled him, and he looked up for a second. When he looked back, she was gone. Jim was under the stairs watching him and muttering. Carson ran back upstairs where he found his aunt standing in the middle of the room looking white as a ghost. His dad and uncle were running into the room with his uncle's shotgun, wide-eyed and crying. What did Jim do? What did he do? At that moment, Jim appeared in the doorway of the cellar and softly said, I didn't do nothing to Carson. I like him. They left then and never went back to visit his aunt and uncle again. And they never spoke about what happened. Many years later, Carson asked his mom about the little girl. She told him that she was his cousin, who was found in the cistern, the victim of an apparent accident. She said May, the little girl, had been climbing on the beams above the cistern when she fell and hit her head. When they found her, Jim was hiding under the stairs. There were those who thought it wasn't an accident. They said Jim did it, but there was nothing to prove it. As his mother told her story, Carson remembered the day he saw the little girl. Jim wasn't just hiding under the stairs when his mother called. He was cleaning out a spot. And he was muttering, Gotta get my hiding place ready. Had Jim found a permanent playmate for little May? Was Carson his next intended victim? I'm reminded of something my mother used to say. Curiosity killed the cat. In this case, it nearly drowned it. Anyone who's seen any of my interviews on Paranormal Odyssey, it may have still been called unscripted back then, might have seen Carson talking about having a dogman encounter with his wife a few years ago. I asked him to write it down and send it to me. This is what he wrote. He and his wife were driving along a state highway in August of last year. It was a typical clear, hot summer day in the country with cornfields on both sides of the road. There was a car in front of them and two more coming toward them from the opposite direction. As they drove along, the car in front of them suddenly hit the brakes. The cars coming from the other direction also began to slow down. In the space between that car and the lead car in the opposite lane, a creature ran out of the cornfield, up the side of the road, and leaped across it, then bounded into the cornfield on the other side. Just like that, it was gone. Carson believes its feet never touched the pavement. It jumped both lanes. 
What the hell was that? They both exclaimed. He said it was an extremely large animal with a back that was well above the hoods of the cars. It appeared to be very muscular with long hind legs and long feet that were arched. Its head had a snout and its neck was stretched out as it ran unbelievably fast. It was covered in medium-length hair that was varying shades of browns, grays, and rusts. Its chest was also well-muscled. That's what stood out to him most, the muscles. Guessing by its length in comparison to the cars, he thinks it was seven to seven and a half feet tall. None of the cars came to a complete stop. Everyone continued driving. I suppose no one really wanted to stop and have it come back out of the cornfield. They passed the first car coming from the other direction, and Carson looked over at them. The man driving was gripping the steering wheel with both hands and staring straight ahead with wide eyes. The woman in the passenger seat was staring at the man, not speaking, just staring. The man driving the second car looked over at Carson as they passed each other. They locked eyes for a moment, and the man threw up his hands as if to say, What the hell was that? All Carson knew was that he and his wife both grew up in the country. They've lived there all their lives. They're familiar with the wildlife. They only saw it for three or four seconds, but it was enough time to recognize that this was something that neither of them had ever seen before. As they reached the spot where it had crossed the road, Carson couldn't bring himself to look to the left or right. He stared straight ahead. It was as if he wasn't supposed to look. And what's most frightening about this story? It happened four miles from their house. Like so many of you, my friends Joe, Pat, and Shelly have been good to check in on me these last couple of weeks, and for that I'm grateful. Joe, Pat has been really good to send some great stories in the past. This isn't one of them. (laughs) Not really, anyway. It's a little tidbit, and what it is, is a reason to remain observant at all times. You never know what you might see. Joe, Pat, and Shelley happened to be at the grocery store perusing the cheese aisle when he and another shopper watched in amazement when something invisible tore a package of cheese off a hook and threw it at Shelley. The package was actually lifted off the hook and tossed down toward her head where she was bent over looking at another cheese. It went through her hair and landed on the floor at her feet with a big smack. It happened so fast there was no time to react until it was over And by then, what could they do? It was definitely a surprise, but it tends to be fairly normal activity in Joe Pat and Shelley's life. For them, the strange and unusual are constant company. The woman beside them, on the other hand, didn't take it quite so calmly. It genuinely freaked her out. Here's one more from a friend whose name I'm not quite sure I can share. I'll call him Simon. Back in the summer of 1972, he was an 11-year-old Boy Scout heading off for a week-long stay at Scout Camp. Before I get too much further into this one, I want to tell you that once, many years ago, I lived along the Wapsipinicon River, not far from the small town of Oxford Junction in eastern Iowa. So as I read this story, I was quickly drawn in. You'll understand why in a minute. It was a fun week for Simon. The older scouts entertained them at night with tales of old Mossyback and warnings to be aware of things in the woods. 
The younger scouts, entranced by these stories of creatures lurking nearby, scooted closer together around the fire to roast their marshmallows, then checked closely around their tents before climbing into their bedrolls at night. I'm sure you're wondering what this old mossy back is. I did a little research and discovered that old mossy back is a name used for Bigfoot in the big thicket of East Texas. Simon and his scout troop, however, were camping along the Wapsipenican River in eastern Iowa. I would imagine that they couldn't have been more than 50 miles from where I would eventually live. Still, I wonder if the creature those older scouts used to scare the badges off the younger boys was one and the same. It wasn't until Tuesday that Simon began to truly feel the effects of those tales. He and his fellow scouts were on a five-mile hike when he began to sense that something was watching him. He tried to ignore the feeling at first, but the longer they hiked, the more overwhelming the feeling became. Periodically, he turned and looked around behind him. Nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary. Being surrounded by woods with no one around for miles can make a boy feel as though his troop were the last people on earth. But that was silly. There were others there, right? His troop members were there. His leader was there. And once, when he turned quickly, he was pretty sure something was there peeking around a tree at him. He was relieved to get back to camp that night. After another round of hot dogs, marshmallows, and the terrifying adventures of old Mossy Back, the boys turned in for the night. Their tents were the old-fashioned kind, with canvas tied to a center post at each end, front and back flaps that tied together in the center, and no floors. Each tent fit two campers with their bedrolls laid out on cots. That day's hike combined with his full belly to overrule any nagging fears of old Mossy Back and wipe out any memories of strange beings poking their heads out around trees to watch. Simon and his tentmate were soon sleeping soundly, but that wasn't to last for long. Sometime in the middle of the night, Simon woke up to the sound of someone crawling around in the brush outside his tent. They were clearly trying to be quiet, but their lung capacity must have been that of a horse. Their heavy breathing as they drew closer to the tent sent cold chills down Simon's spine. Once it got closer, it stood up on two feet and began to move around the tent. Simon's tentmate, the assistant patrol leader, had a wind-up alarm clock. He was sure this thing was interested in the ticking sound it was making. It stood there forever while Simon held his breath and shivered in fear. Just when he thought he couldn't take another second, the thing made a grunting sound and moved to the back of the tent. But if Simon thought it was leaving the camp, he was wrong. The thing opened the back flap and stuck its head inside. Now he was out of his mind with fear, but what could he do? He laid there as still as he could until it went away. For five hours, Simon laid in that tent and waited for the sun to come up. As soon as he thought it was safe, he quickly dressed and went outside. The scoutmaster was coming out of his tent at the same time, looking as pale as a ghost. Did you hear anything in camp last night? He asked the scoutmaster. He stammered for a second, probably unsure of what to say before answering... Uh, yes, uh, I did. Did you see it? Simon asked. The scoutmaster said he didn't see anything, but he heard it going through all the camp kitchens. This wouldn't be the last time Simon had nightmare encounters from the strange creature. 
Several months later, during a winter camp, something very similar happened again, and this time it laid down next to him in the snow. Do you think that's scary enough? Well, 13 miles from there, and around the same time as Simon's winter camp, along the Cedar River, an 11-year-old Boy Scout named Guy Heckel disappeared. He was last seen playing a game of Capture the Flag with his fellow scouts around 8 p.m. He wasn't missed until bed check later that evening. After doing a thorough search of their own, the scoutmaster called in the Lynn County Police. On Sunday, February 4, 1973, the light blue parka he'd been wearing was found snagged on a bush on the bank of the river. His mother identified the coat as his. On Monday, more investigators and volunteers searched again using bloodhounds, and again they came up empty. When snow arrived on Tuesday, the search was called off. There are many theories as to what happened to Guy Heckel. The most popular theory is that he fell into the river and drowned, but no body has ever been found. Because his body was never recovered, others think he was the victim of foul play. Either way, to this day, his light blue parka is the only evidence ever recovered in the cold case file of Guy Heckel. I wonder if the boy might have been wearing a watch. Who knows what that tick, tick, tick sound might have attracted. I'm Neoma Finn. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.